If you look at all the exilic writings, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, we could go on and on, all written by displaced people, by refugees, that people were not home, that they weren't living in their dominant culture. That's the story of Scripture. It just keeps on going and going. In Exodus it says, do not oppress a stranger because you yourselves know how it feels to be a stranger because you were strangers in Egypt. The kingdom on the margins. The kingdom on the margins. There, there's uh, several men in a locker room of a golf club. And uh, a phone that was sitting on the bench rang. One of the men picked it up and opened it up and put, put it on speaker so everyone could hear. said, hello? Hello, honey, is that you? Are you at the golf club? Yes, yes, I am. You know, I, I was just at Westgate and I found this fabulous leather jacket for only a thousand pounds. You wouldn't mind if I bought it, would you? Oh, no, go ahead if you like it. That's, that's great. By this time, all the men in the room are listening to the conversation. You know, I also happen to pass by the Mercedes dealership on my way, and I noticed they had that new model, that one that we love. They're only, they're only asking 90,000 pounds for it. Do you think we could do that? He says, yes, but, you know, for that price, you better get all the options on that. That, that would be helpful. She says, you know what? You know, remember that house by the Mathega Club that we loved? You know, it's back on the market, only 225 million shillings. I'm, I'm sure we could do that. He said, try and get them down to 200 million shillings, and, and we'll, we'll talk about that. She said, oh, that's great. Thank you so much, Eddie. I'll talk to you later. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. He clicks off the phone and, and he says, whose is this? <laughs> it's nice to know the identity of the people that we're talking with and know what the conversation is like. Who decides the identity of a person? Who decides we can only have one identity? Who is the gatekeeper of identity anyway? And I just had to acknowledge and to live out my multiple identities. And those of you who've had to endure and listen to me uh, talk for these last few years, you're going to have to endure just a little bit more as I tell and explain why I'm talking about the, the subject. Because as this international hodgepodge conglomerate uh, of, of people, um, it's, it's a community and one that, that I, I feel like, and in some cases anyway, I understand quite well. Uh, for those of you who, who may not know my story, we have loads of new people here this morning. Um, my secondary school years were spent on three different continents. So I, I grew up in the DRC. I lived in Belgium for a couple of years. I lived eight years in Israel. And, and I, along the way, collected a number of different languages. Whenever my family sits and, and eats uh, together, my parents tell me that I was actually speaking Lingala, Kikongo, and French before I was speaking English. And that whenever we would have conversations around the dinner table, if you couldn't remember the word in whatever language that sentence was in, you'd simply borrow it from another language and you'd insert that. So you could have a sentence that have three or four different languages in it. And, and that's the way that I was raised. And that was normal for me. But, but I quickly lived, uh, learned that the one year that I did secondary school in the, U, in the U.S. That, that I was a stranger. That I automatically gravitated towards the African-Americans, which didn't work well, by the way. But they were the people who I thought I could understand and would understand me and discovered they're an entirely different species than the Africans that I grew up with. So what does it mean to be relevant in that context? Rather, I really love to focus on Jesus and his kingdom and not be chasing every the newest church fad that, that is out there. So, so what does it mean? It means that really anyone who resigns themselves to be far part of this community has decided to give up somebody. 
something, I should say. You know, we, we often have people who come from various different traditions where they're looking for the Anglican prayer book beneath the seat, and they, they're really frustrated, and they come up and tell me, I just I haven't found the prayer book yet. Where do, you, where do you keep those things? And the Pentecostal sitting next to them is looking for the chandelier to swing from. And they're sitting next to each other, the Anglican and the Pentecostal, and they're all both equally annoyed with me for different reasons, I'm sure, as some of you probably are this morning. And, and because when you decide that you want to be part of this very sort of odd international community, you, you decide to give up something. But, but I hope in the end you also discover that you're gaining something. And there's a certain richness, I, I believe, and a relevancy that, that is of an entirely different nature than perhaps most churches. But if I can wander away from the language of church for a minute, I want to talk about something that I believe is more important and in the end more biblical, and that, that's the kingdom of God. I just want to remind you that in the Gospels, Jesus uses the word church maybe once or twice, but he uses the phrase kingdom of God or in Matthew's version, kingdom of heaven over a hundred times. Jesus' proclamation of the kingdom suggests that the future and the present are inseparably woven together. And he stresses that the present impact of an imminent future, a future that is coming, and it's the inbreaking of the kingdom of God, and that is what we're looking for. That's what we want to be involved in. I'm really not interested in doing church. I'm much more interested in doing the kingdom because it's far more dynamic and it doesn't have some, some of the cultural barnacles that we find in, in, in other places. And so if the, the church is indeed a sign of the kingdom, I would just want to remind you again, the church is not the kingdom of God, but the church is part of and located within the kingdom of God. The church is a witness to the kingdom. We don't build and we are not the kingdom of God, but rather God builds. And we are witnesses to what he does as he builds. And as such, we, we are custodians of the kingdom. We may have a key to the front door, but the title of ownership is firmly in God's possession and in his name. It's, it's located in real life, in all the encounters we have on the margins. And the margins for you may, may be an ethnic margin, social margin, gender, age. Remember, margin is that blank space that runs down the corner of your, your screen or, or your page. It, the, a margin may, may also be the difference between a costing, cost and selling price of something. A margin may somehow communicate to you a limit of what is possible. But what, what is it for us to be part of the kingdom of God on the margins? What, it, what is it for us to be a relevant church, we say, that, that exists? Well, you might remember your, your geography, but Samaria was an area that Jews did not like to come to. They would prefer, in fact, to take these circuitous routes either down the Jordan River, avoiding Samaria, or down what they called Via Maris, which was also avoiding Samaria. But they didn't like being with those dirty, uncouth Samaritans. They wanted to avoid them at all costs. And Jesus deliberately and strategically, at different times, like when he met the woman at the well in John 4, deliberately comes into this territory where Jews were not welcome and, and brings good news. He comes in to that margin and speaks something. He does it on more than one occasion, doesn't he? I remember reading an article in The Economist that reported that there are well over 150 million migrant people around the world. Well over. 
Sikhs living in Germany, Pakistanis living in England, Koreans living in Saudi Arabia, Kenyans in Dubai. These people are generally living on the margins of the existing culture, eating the breadcrumbs that fall from the table. You probably know as well that within Africa itself, there are more migrants, displaced people and refugees within the continent of Africa than anywhere else in the world. And these Africans are are living as displaced people, as refugees in another culture, another country, in a foreign context to them. And even so, it says that that Jesus, verse 12, was going into the village when they met him. In other words, they're, they're not permitted in the village. They're not accepted in in the public sphere, in the marketplace. They are separated out on the margins of that village, on the margins of that society. And that's where Jesus met them. They said they stood at a distance so they wouldn't defile him. So here here are strangers to their own culture, their own people. They're an ethically mixed community that's gathered together, gathered by their, their suffering and their pain. And yet they're strangers. But but being a stranger is a very biblical concept. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, all displaced people, all refugees at some point, all living in a dominant culture that was not their own. If you look at all the exilic writings, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, we could go on and on, all written by displaced people, by refugees, that people were not home, that they weren't living in their dominant culture. That's the story of Scripture. It just keeps on going and going. And that's why in Exodus it says, do not oppress a stranger because you yourselves know how it feels to be a stranger because you were strangers in Egypt. You know how it feels. I've lived as a minority most of my life. People hear my accent, they look at my passport, they say, ah, an American. What they don't know is how confused it is in here. Never, by the way, ask someone like me where home is. I'll I'll be reduced to tears in minutes. We're so completely confused, we have no idea where home is. By the way, after the service, I expect 11 or 12 people to ask me where home is when we, we leave here. That's it's usually what, what happens when I, when I say something like that. But that's the kind of cultural schizophrenia, multiple personality disorder that, that we types have when we, we think in other languages, speak in other languages. But people who hear one accent assume that they know what's going on in here, but really they don't. I, 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 when, when I was in high school, the one year I was in high school in the U.S., I was better friends with Japanese and other people who were also in a foreign culture than I was with the Americans. Because I, I simply didn't understand the Americans. I thought they were very odd. Sorry, but that's how it was. So what, what does it feel like to belong? Where, where do you belong? And if you look around this room and look at, we probably have 30 to 40 different nationalities ethnicities in the room, we generally do. That's about, about our average. You'll find that, that we come from all over the place. Tajikistan, Korea, Japan. I actually, Someone actually brought an Israeli here one, one morning. I think she was a little surprised it was she was brought, being brought to church, but she was even more surprised to be talking to an American who could speak perfect Hebrew with her. We're just a mixed group. We're a strange lot. Where does it belong? You see, Jesus was on the margins. He, he, he knew how to meet people. And he's going to meet them, we see, in a holistic way. And, and the other margin that, that we find here is, is a cultural, socioeconomic margin. 
Paul writes to the Galatians who needed to hear this because they were a prejudiced racist lot. He says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. What, what, what I find is, is as we look at that, and how does that, that apply here, that, that sometimes the reason that, that people actually identify in any place here is because they're Kenyans, or I've met Ugandans, I've even met Congolese, or I could speak Lingala too, who were raised somewhere else. But because they're educated in the West, they don't feel comfortable necessarily worshiping and just an African church. They, they, they become more international. So what do we do with that? What does that, that feel like? And I find that there are cultural collisions that, that happen. I, I, I once had a, a, a Westerner who was in an interesting, uh, very tense conversation with some other Africans who I won't name who are out here, and the conversation wasn't going well because he had dishonored them and respected them very early in the conversation. And I literally was called to go out there and save him from being lynched. Because he had no idea that he had dishonored and disrespected these people. He was relatively new to Africa. <laughs> and we have these sorts of things happen all the time. Not fistfights or lynching, you understand, but not understanding each other. These ten were rejected from their own culture because of their leprosy. A horribly disfiguring skin disease. And that actually leprosy could, could describe a variety of skin diseases. But they were strangers to their own community, so they formed their own community. Well, you know... I love to form my own community, just let's not have any of those Irish around. Or, you know, I, no combos or luos, please. I mean, there's a limit, you know. Or whatever it is for you, the size, the Samaritans, let's, let's form our own community, but let's not have those ones in our midst. But the odd thing is, suffering is a great equalizer, isn't it? And so they're brought together by, by their humanity and their suffering. And what they would do is they position themselves near major traffic roads, near, near major bypasses where there's a lot of foot traffic, other things going by where they had a greater chance of getting alms and charity and money. And what's going to happen is when Jesus heals them, he's not just going to heal them physically, but he's going to make them employable. Because as they get cleansed and reintegrated back into the culture, they can now work. It may have me just Juakali working, but they're doing something now. They're going to regain some sense of dignity. And so he, he is not just touching them physically, but he is making them so they can now earn a living. They can now work. They can now be trained. And so verse 13 says, they stood up and cried, Jesus, Master. Where did they get the Master from? You know, the only ones in Scripture who call Jesus Master are the disciples. Like a special term, a term almost of intimacy. But somehow, did, did the suffering cause them to recognize something that others wouldn't? How, how was it they perceived something of Jesus' identity and position and relationship with the Father that they called him Master, but they did? And they said, have mercy, have pity on us. Because, see, the law required that whenever they went out into a public place, they had to yell, unclean, 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 lest they defile somebody else. Imagine having to go into the classroom, into work, into the office, or at home, wherever it is tomorrow morning, and yell, unclean, I am unclean, I am unclean. Imagine having to do that your whole life. I am un I'm diseased. Walk in tomorrow morning to the office and yell out, I'm diseased, and see how that goes. The isolation and shame that came with that is almost worse than the disease itself. So what Jesus does in his healing is he brings them back into community. 
You see, we're, we're called to be a relevant church that speaks into our communities wherever God has, has placed us. And, and the uniqueness that this congregation is, it serves as a very unique launching pad platform to reach a variety of communities. He doesn't approach them. He doesn't touch them. He doesn't say you're cured. All he says is go show yourself to the priest. And they go merrily trouncing off. Can you imagine as, as they're running off to do this, show themselves to the priest, they're, they're being obedient, but do they understand really what they're doing? You see, the, the priests were the gatekeepers. They, they, they were the health inspectors. They're the ones that, if, if you looked healthy enough, they, they let you reintegrate into the culture. And as they're going, and they needed to go in order to get well, did they understand what they were doing? You, you see, it's not that they, they had to be well and then they went. They were going diseased. And as they went being diseased, just like you and me, they get touched. You see, as we go out and do the things that Jesus says that we are to do in obedience, we go out not because we're worthy or because we're perfected, but because even as broken, diseased creatures, which we all are, including me, but in the going, in obedience, we get healed. And all of a sudden, along the way, they discovered God has done something. What are the similarities between these? That they're all diseased, all ten of them. They all determined to do something about it. They all thought Jesus might do something about it. They acknowledged Jesus as master. They all obeyed him and went to find the priest. They were all healed. But one of them. It says, when he saw. Verse 15 says, when he saw. You know, that that same language, by the way, is what's language that's used of Peter in Luke 5. When Jesus says, throw the net on the other side. And they catch this big catch of fish. And and Peter says, away from me because I'm a sinful man. When he saw the catch of fish. It's the same language that's used here. That when he saw that he's healed, he had to go back. He says he had a spiritual awakening of some kind. He could praise God anywhere. He could have gone to the temple and praised God. But, but instead, he needs to come back into Jesus' presence because he's experienced somehow the inbreaking of the kingdom in that. And he throws himself at Jesus' feet. He needs to connect with him somehow. Albert Kamau says that human relationships always help us to carry on because they always presuppose a future. And his future has been relocated to the freedom of Jesus. Because now there's a spiritual margin. He asked them three questions. He asked this fellow three questions, but they're all rhetorical. We're not ten cleansed. We're the other nine. Why has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? Oh, Jesus is rather cruel, isn't he? But you know what he's doing, don't you? He's provoking those who are listening to the conversation. He's provoking his disciples to remember at the end of this story that they will one day carry the good news into Samaritan territory, even as he has already started to. They will will witness him with a woman at the well, a Samaritan woman. He'll witness his his efforts to reach into that community and how, how, how that goes. And so he's deliberately doing something to shake up those racists, those prejudiced ones who are listening into the conversation and as, and as he as he does that, we, we recognize that, that as he he connects with this man in front of others, that that what happens is Jesus always comes as an outsider 
into a culture that has not yet heard the good news. That every culture that hears the good news for the first time has to hear it through the ears and eyes of a stranger. Jesus is always the outsider. He's always the one on the margins, the stranger that that needs to, to be invited in. But he shows God's heart that's reflected in this passage in Timothy that this is good and pleases God, our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And so he who is the truth says to the Samaritan who's standing in front of all these Jews and probably only Jews at this point and, and says "And your faith has made you well. But that that word made you well means is sozo, which means word for, for salvation, to be saved. It's very holistic. So the, the, all the lepers in the earlier verses were cleansed. That's a different word entirely. But now he uses the word sozo, salvation. What he's saying is, is by your recognition, by your spiritual awakening, all of you, every part of you is being healed. Every facet of your person. Because that's what the God who lives and writes on our margins does. He heals and restores us completely. And he says, rise up, go. Go on your healing and tell, just like he does with the demoniac. Rise up and go. Go tell other people. This is God's missional heart again. Miguel de la Torre writes this. God's self-revelation to humanity does not occur from the center of world power, but in the margins of society. It is not from the courts of Pharaoh that God's laws are unveiled to humanity, but from their slaves. Nor does the incarnation occur in the imperial Caesar, palace of Caesar, or in the household of the high priest in Jerusalem. Rather, he is made flesh among the peasants around Jerusalem. Why is it that the Samaritan did not go back to his own Samaritan priest or to Mount Gerizim, to the the Samaritan temple that was there? Why didn't he return them? Why didn't he go and show himself there? Had he nowhere else to go? I think he discovered that Jesus is where he belonged. That, That apart from Jesus, we are all homeless and we're all strangers. And it is only in coming to him that we really discover who we truly are. Let's pray together.